twice. Well, that's a strange title, isn't it? Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. On today's episode, uh, James Craig is uh, going to uh, be talking to us. I interviewed him last year. He's the archivist of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, and he runs a state-of-the-art archive with documents and artifacts related to the history of the Pentecostal movement in Canada. We're going to learn some intriguing details about data storage and the value of looking back. Part of this interview uh, explores the early Pentecostal history of ministry engagement in urban centers. Uh, Jim's also the executive director of the Lifestream Initiative, uh, which exists to discover, disseminate, and facilitate new opportunities for churches to love their neighbors. Current areas of focus include the mental health needs of first responders and their families, mental health education for faith leaders, and assisting churches to becoming more engaged in their communities. With a primary emphasis on Mississauga, Ontario, Canada's sixth largest city, the initiative serves to bring Christian leaders together and make new connections between and among those engaged in a variety of ministries. So let's go now to my interview with James Craig. James, it's not every day that people meet professional archivists. And in fact, you might be the only one that I know personally. Uh, some of our Sidewalk Skyline podcast interviews were actually recorded uh, at your workplace, the PAOC archives. And we got to have a tour uh, while we were here of, of the storage facilities and, and uh, hear a bit about the process. Um, in, in my thinking, archives hold the past, but also they have deposits for the future. So take us on a five senses tour of this way that you spend four days of your work week. Sure, Kevin. Um, you talk about the, the past and the future. The two are intimately connected, of course. Uh, I teach history at our Bible college, and one of the things I tell my students is that God can't change history, but historians can. And archives is what keeps them honest, hopefully. Yeah. In other words, it has the documentation you know, uh, to support uh, where we're going. So five senses, that, that got me thinking a little bit. Uh, obviously, site, if you were to walk through our facility, we have five rooms that we work with. Um, probably the most interesting is the repository where we keep all the good stuff. We call it the Holy of Holies. And uh, if you were to walk in there, you would hear a sound that's very important to us, and that is the hum of our archival furnace, which actually keeps that room very carefully tuned to 20 degrees Celsius and 45% relative humidity. Why is that important? Because paper uh, records, of which we have many, will last uh, probably 200 years in that room with no problem. Uh, audiovisual stuff, not so much so, but that's if you don't have those controls uh, and the $20,000 furnace that makes it possible, then you don't have an archives. So that's one of the sounds that, uh, so that are important. storing yeah. boxes of papers in a damp basement is not a good idea? Not a good idea. No, no, okay. no. We, we have encountered that sort of thing. Uh, which brings us to, to, the, uh, to the, uh, the smell side of things, too. Uh, we do get stuff that's been uh, stored in uh, not the best conditions, so we have to remediate it. But the simple way to tell, of course, is you just open up the book or whatever and stick it in your nose and smell for mold, which is the biggest problem. So then mm -hmm. we 
have to uh, demold it in our high-tech molding demolding chamber, which is basically a big bin mm-hmm. and a container of baking soda. And you just sit the stuff in there for two or three months, and it just pulls all the mold out. It's that's quite, high-tech. Quite, that's high-tech. That's very high-tech. <laughs> baking soda. Baking soda. Yeah, well, that's why people keep it in their fridge. It really yeah. does absorb odors. Yeah. yeah. So we've done uh, more than our share of that. Uh, taste was a, was was what I had to... to uh, deal with a little differently we don't normally touch with our tongues things in the archives that's apparently not a good procedure <laughs> you could get fired we, well yeah, yeah. yeah exactly uh, but actually we do have uh, if you'd like to taste some good pentecostal preaching we have over seven thousand audio cassettes wow. of uh, conferences and sermons and so on and so forth so that's something you can taste. Is that an acquired and, taste? Uh, uh, well, it depends on your background. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on the preacher. Yeah. Some, uh, some of the recordings, we don't listen to them all, obviously. We uh, try to be judicious in how we select them. Hmm. But um, we do have some remarkable preachers, so mm-hmm. we've been able to transcribe some of that material. Um, if you look at uh, the last one, of course, is touch. And I think, oh, what could I show you for touch? So I brought along a piece of paper here, which is not um, just an ordinary piece of paper. And um, it comes from the 1967 Centennial Project for Canada's 100th birthday of Bethel Pentecostal Church in Ottawa, where they decided to write a handwritten Bible. So they had the congregation, as well as many other individuals, write an entire chapter of Scripture. So 1,189 people wrote uh, a chapter of Scripture on these large pages that were all pre-printed with lines, and they mailed them out to them, Mm -hmm. and then had them write their chapter and mail it back. But what's really interesting, if you look at the list of people who wrote the chapters, there's mm-hmm. all the people in the church, but there are also some other interesting names. Uh, it's a bit of a who's who of the POC. But even going beyond that, if you look at this particular chapter, this is Psalm 67. I don't know if you recognize the signature at the bottom of the page. The person didn't put their title, they just put their name. Is that an LM? Uh, that's an LB. Oh, LB Pearson. The Prime Minister Lester of Canada. B. Pearson. The Prime Minister of Canada wrote this wow. chapter. Now, how often can you say I've actually touched a piece of paper that... Now, were they assigned their uh, passages, or did they get to choose the uh, They probably were assigned, I believe. Yeah. I think so. I'm not sure of those details. We do have some information on how the project was done, but not to that level of detail. Psalm 67. Yeah. Which talks about the nations and so forth. What's wow. interesting in particular, notice that he only puts Ottawa. He doesn't put his title. Yeah. Yeah. That's John Diefenbaker wrote a chapter too. He put his title. Yeah. <laughs> but Pearson didn't. If you don't yeah. know who I am, yeah. then you don't know. But, but, well, yeah. I, well, I think it was more a question of modesty. When you're writing, he, I believe yeah. he was a follower of Jesus. So when yeah. you're writing the Word of God. And, you know, and uh, he was, was a part, was he a part of Bethel in Ottawa? No, he wasn't a part of that no, church. But, no, uh, but I believe he, he was a man who to knew the be Lord. a part yeah. of the project. He did. It did as well as uh, Joey Smallwood, who, of course, mm-hmm. was Mr. Newfoundland. And, yeah. Uh, Robarts, who was a Premier of Ontario, and Daniel Johnson, the Premier of Quebec, and uh, a number of other prominent individuals. So you can say now you've touched a piece of paper the Prime Minister wrote on. Yeah. I I better not look at it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we don't allow that. We put that over there so something does get spilled on it. Yeah. Hmm. So that's a yeah, very, very quick overview on the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as you requested uh, on the work of the archives. So, um, Sidewalk <clears throat> Skyline, of course, is a podcast about urban ministry in Canada. And if we were to explore the PAOC archives in search of urban ministry, uh, what, if anything, would we find there? Uh, has PAOC been an urban movement? Can uh, 
Well, I mean, we did some work on this uh, in preparation for another group uh, that you were part of that I shared with and tried to get a sense of that. And uh, mm. quite interesting, in the, when the PSC was formed in 1919, 1920, uh, if you look at it from the standpoint of the most populous 10 cities in the country, mm-hmm. uh, we were at 27 churches. Six of them were in those large cities, that's 22%. And the percentage of the Canadian population that lived in large ci- those 10 cities was about 18%. So we're actually a little bit ahead of the curve there. But if you move forward to 1945, you find that only 7.7% of our churches were in the 10 largest cities. So our urban presence was shrinking. Was shrinking. Yeah. And, and at that point, 23.5% of the Canadians lived in those 10 cities. Mm. So we went from par, pretty much, or above par, down to um, 7, 7.5% versus 24%. Hmm. So about one third. But now in 2016, which is the latest numbers we have, we're back at 22%. 22% of the Canadian population lives in those 10 cities and 22% of our churches are in those cities. Hmm. So we've always been, um, I, I wouldn't say we've always been urban. I would say that uh, in many cases, our churches were started in small towns. Mm-hmm. But of course, in 1920, uh, almost 80% of the Canadian population lived in smaller centers. Of course, StatsCan considers a city a thousand or more. Well, if you look right. at a town of a thousand, that's we wouldn't call that a city no, these wouldn't. days. No. So there are differences there, and there's been, of course, a huge evolution uh, and growth of cities uh, due to a number of factors, and then the growth of the suburbs and uh, factors regarding um, technological development and. Uh, also, the war and the baby boom generation after that, and then the immigration after the war, and all those kinds of things have affected everything. So we're back, as I say, at uh, at twenty two percent. That's just the ten largest cities, mm-hmm. but many of our churches were started, and many of our pioneers worked in small towns. Mm-hmm. So you have remarkable stories. There was a revival, for example, in the early twenties in Mill Rush, which now is under the St. Lawrence River, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, it, it came about, and they, it always started with holding meetings. Mm-hmm. So you'd find a church, or if we had a small church, you'd bring in an evangelist, and they would they would all pray, sometimes spending days and days in fasting and prayer before the meetings began. And then people would invite their neighbors and friends, they'd advertise. And then people would start to get saved and healed. Mm-hmm. And the word would spread, and more people would come, and you know things developed usually in that sort of a fashion. And the, the ministry of the evangelist, the evangelist as the person who speaks in the pulpit during a crusade sort of mm-hmm. event, was very important to evangelism for a very long time. And there were people who were, uh, had remarkable ministries that traveled the country and, uh, and held these crusades that led many people to Christ over the years. And that was, the, that was I think, the main thrust as far as evangelism. People shared their faith, mm-hmm. but um, that was certainly the main thrust. Is to, mm-hmm. And, of course, you've got to remember through most of that time, Canadians were church-going people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the population uh, was largely... Uh, connected to some church at some point for a very long time. Of course, you also have to remember that uh, a good chunk of our country is Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. as opposed to the states. Here it's 50%, there it's 20 mm-hmm. And that's made a difference in terms of you know Protestant church growth and so forth. So we, we've been involved uh, in, in large cities to some extent, but not uh, exclusively uh, over the years. Mm. In our history, uh, are there any particular... Um, you know, city stories or urban stories uh, that uh, are are noteworthy or memorable to you. Well, uh, that that's a challenging question. I mean, there are so many stories in the twenty thousand pages of the testimony. Sadly, I haven't read them all. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you also but you're were not dead yet. Yeah, not dead yet. Yes, reading. that's true. That's I was right. trying to figure out this morning how long it would take to read all that stuff. <laughs> Several years, in fact. But um, there have been uh, some city revivals. Uh, you have a question that you wanted to ask at some point about women, and uh, this kind of hmm. crosses over. But there was a remarkable uh, move of God in the early 20s in St. John, New Brunswick. And it was led by two American ladies uh, called the Carroll Sisters. Uh, and uh, sorry, the, the Davis Sisters, Susie and Carol oh, Davis. Yeah. yeah. And they came from originally Georgia, uh, had some ministry in Bangor, Maine, and came into New Brunswick for a while in Fredericton and had some meetings that were opposed by people in the city, went back to Georgia, uh, and then finally came back to St. John and started uh, some, some meetings there that were remarkably uh, blessed in terms of hmm. hundreds and hundreds of people. Some interesting stories about it. it seemed that every venue they went to got burned down. Hmm. Either that or the Lord told them to move out just before it burned down. <laughs> <laughs> so the fire was falling in some respects. Yeah. But uh, they also led, this, their, their work also led to the planning of 14 churches in New Brunswick. Wow. Uh, you know, from that one city revival. So that's, that's one example, hmm. you know, of an urban revival. And there were others, of course. In 1920, there was a remarkable crusade in Montreal uh, mm -hmm. with a young lady named Amy Semple McPherson, mm -hmm. who many of your viewers may have heard of. She was... Uh, of course, uh, became famous in the United States, but she was a Canadian girl born near Salt, Ontario, filled with the spirit of the Hebden Mission, which was the first Pentecostal uh, mission in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, met Robert Semple, uh, who was an evangelist, uh, and uh, then married him, and uh, so on. Her career developed. But in 1920, she preached uh, in what was Evangel Pentecostal Church Montreal. And the, the challenge was there were so many people coming, they had to keep moving into a larger, larger venue. Mm. Uh, until they finally ended up in the largest ballroom in the city. Mm. Many, many people healed. Uh, many reporters came to mock and walked away with stories of people being miraculously healed before their eyes. Mm. Uh, quite a powerful revival. And also some other things were happening during that time as well uh, in terms of organizational development that kind of went on beyond the scenes, behind the scenes while the crusade was going on. Mm -hmm. So those would be two outstanding examples uh, of revivals uh, you know, in, in a city setting. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> For, for a guy who uh, works alone much of the time, you know, uh, you also have a deep love for community and, and for helping churches find ways to, to love their neighbors. Um, talk, talk to me about that. Tell me some of the community pieces that you've been engaged in. Uh, you you're, you live in Mississauga, you work in Mississauga, so this is this is your city. It's my city. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, I, I, from following you on, on social media, I see that you love your city. I do. If that's apparent <laughs> by the things you give yourself to. So talk to us a bit yeah. about community here. Well, Mississauga is uh, the sixth largest city in the country. And it's a remarkable city in many, many ways. Uh, one of the things that's remarkable in our city is an incredible spiritual heritage that we have. Mm. Unlike any other place, as far as I know, in Canada, in the 1700s, uh, the Mississauga First Nation were here. Uh, and uh, through a series of land deals, most of which they didn't understand, uh, most of the city was given over to uh, the, the provincial authorities and so forth. And because of the settlers coming in after the War of 1812 um, and even before that. But um, uh, at the end of the day, they were left with just 200 acres in the entire city. And uh, at that point, it was called the Credit Mission. And because it was called the Credit Mission because um, the 
African or the Methodist Episcopal Church from the United States brought Methodism into Canada in the late 1700s, crossing at Cornwall. And they had the technology to reach the, the, the basically uh, millions of acres of rocks and trees that was Ontario, pretty much, yeah. and still is by, if you do, do the math. But with the circuit rider, and they would go from farm to farm and preach the gospel, or many people, of course, were Christians, or they have Sunday school. The technology was a horse and a Bible. That's right. Yeah. And very rough individuals who probably didn't have a lot of education, but they knew the Lord and they knew their Bible, yeah. and they went from place to place, uh, to the point where by the late 1800s, uh, 45% of Ontarians were Methodists. Hmm. And Methodist churches had enough seats in them to accommodate everybody in the entire province. So, um, tremendously uh, dynamic, uh, you know, growth of that, uh, of that movement. And, but the Mississaugas, uh, at that time, they had elected their, uh, their most recent chief, was a man named Peter Jones. Mm-hmm. And Peter was an interesting man. His father was British. His mother was uh, First Nations. But he received an English education. And um, Peter, uh, besides having all of the trappings, the language and everything uh, of a First Nations person who was elected chief, of his group, uh, he also understood that um, the tides were turning and First Nations people had to learn to accommodate what was happening. Because up until that point, they'd been hunter-gatherers, where if you're a hunter-gatherer, you need lots of space yeah. and forest to live. Yeah. So in the winters, they, they, they did their hunting and trapping. Then they came down in the summers to the river mouths, like at the Credit River. And they, um, you know, kind of hung out with other groups and, and uh, you know, sort of had, had a bit of a vacation time and they fished in the river, and which was uh, full of salmon. Uh, it's a story of one man who took a hundred salmon out of the river himself in one night. <laughs> yeah, that's until the industry came. And of course, yeah. then there were some 30 or 40 mills up and down the river t- and tanneries that poured raw material from tanning hides into the river yeah. and uh, so forth and, and despoiled it. But um, the credit mission to 200 uh, acres and Peter Jones worked hard to teach his people farming and to give them an education. Mm-hmm. So the government had promised to build them, uh, you know, uh, what they needed there, and they never did. So they just built it themselves. And uh, he was designated because uh, Peter became a missionary with the Methodist Episcopal Church mm-hmm. and uh, traveled, did fundraising, did fundraising in England where he met his wife, had a personal audience with Queen Victoria, who promised that they would be given the deed to their land, which they never were. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter was uh, w- was the leader of the band, and the missionary appointed to work with him was a man named Edgerton Ryerson, Ryerson. who you, you may have heard of. He founded Ontario's <laughs> educational system. Yeah, it's a there's a little university named after I him. I think I've heard of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were they were the best of friends, and uh, they did a remarkable work in that First Nations. In that, I think, unlike anywhere else in the country, uh, they literally sent out evangelists to 13 other uh, Mississauga First Nations groups, Ojibwe groups, in Ontario mm. in the 1720s. Wow. Now that is absolutely remarkable. Wow. Uh, and so they were training and sending out evangelists to their own people at their own expense mm. from Mississauga. Wow. Uh, later on, 1748, they had to move because essentially um, the government never did honor the treaties and so forth. And right. they were supposed to have hunting and fishing rights a mile either side of the Credit River. Mm-hmm. And so the farmers would take pot shots at them if they ever saw them in their fields and this kind of stuff. So they realized they had to move. And, and they finally found a place that uh, was given to them by the uh, fifth, five, five nations at that time, now the six nations, the Iroquois people down by Brantford, whose land originally was Mississauga land. Mm. And they gave them a little section in the corner of their reserve where they live today. 
and uh, they're quite, they're still quite a remarkable group. They're not uh, there aren't many explicit Christians there now, but the legacy mm-hmm. of following Christ in that group of people is truly remarkable. They have a high school where their students study the Ojibwe language. I mm. don't think there's many like that across the country. Mm. They have settled all their land claims with Mississauga, so they're 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 fairly prosperous. There's only been one murder in over 150 years on that reserve. Wow. And it was a, a, a Six Nations woman who left her husband and moved in with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Husband came and killed them too. So they weren't even Mississaugas yeah. that were killed. Yeah. So there's a tremendous spiritual legacy mm-hmm. of uh, not just uh, prayer and evangelism and sharing the gospel, but also developing businesses, education, mm-hmm. all of those things that they participated in. They were part owners mm-hmm. of the port, of Port Credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had uh, quite an amazing influence despite uh, all the challenges that they faced. So we are so blessed with that spiritual heritage mm-hmm. of faithfulness to God, of evangelism, of prayer. And uh, one of my favorite stories is a little church on Lakeshore Road that was originally a Methodist chapel. Uh, it was actually built by Peter Jones uh, and his people. You can still go down in the basement of that church, and there's a small place where they've left the uh, uh the plaster off the wall, and you can see the stones that they took out of the river, the women, wow. to make the foundation of this little, this little building. And of course, it was yeah. later became a United Church, and they built a large United Church beside it. But the smaller church, which is still there, it's now a beautiful stone structure, but it's very small, was actually purchased by the POC a few years back, and is a POC church that's doing an amazing work in the community. What's exciting to me is at some point in time in the last 10 years or so, YWAM was training young people from the basement of that church to take the gospel around the world mm. on the same spot where Peter Jones trained his people to take the gospel to his own people in Ontario. Now, you tell me that's a coincidence. Wow. <laughs> I don't think that's so. Amazing. So and, there's all of that heritage yeah, that's there in yeah. the land. And, you know? and, I mean, Methodism had a had quite a quite a good run in, in Canada. Absolutely. Um, I, in Windsor, uh, downtown Windsor, there's Central United Church. And uh, um, originally it was a, a Methodist church. And... Uh, during, uh, I believe it was the early 1900s, that church held uh, 10 days of uh, preaching meetings yeah. and uh, saw 12 to 1400 people uh, make a profession of faith. And, uh, and I do not know of that ever happening again in Windsor in that concentrated of uh, an event. Yeah. You know, and uh, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the the crusade evangelism model has has fallen on hard times, and and we live in a different time. But but there's something uh, that that God was uniquely doing in Canada in uh, in our formative years. Absolutely. Yeah. If you went to the convention of the Methodist Church in Ontario in the late 1800s. The premier and half the cabinet would be in the front row because they were all Methodist ministers. Yeah, so there was a huge influence there and uh, right across the country. But of course, that uh, that succumbed to the onslaught of uh, modernity and uh, mm-hmm. evolution, higher criticism of scripture, psychology, which questioned personal conversion, yeah. all of those things that they ultimately embraced and moved into what we call the social gospel. Yeah, which had some effect on our roots. Actually, I mm-hmm. think that Ari McAllister and others were responding to the um, socialization of the gospel, the abandonment of preaching the word of God and people's need for personal relationship with Christ right. when they started the POC. I think we were actually a reaction mm-hmm. going back to the old time religion. 
mm-hmm. to that. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the influence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit played a role as well. Right, right. <clears throat> um, so talk to me about some some of the community things uh, you're involved in. Uh, so currently, uh, I'm involved in uh, um, a project that it, some of these things take a long time to mature, especially when you're working with the city. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I would love to see is for our faith uh, community uh, buildings in the city be properly prepared as emergency disaster shelters. Mm-hmm. I got the idea from uh, Faith Today magazine. It was a front page story uh, about four years back of the flood in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And before that flood happened, God spoke to a just an ordinary uh, woman, a lay, lay person, middle-aged woman, about uh, helping churches get connected to the emergency services department and prepared mm-hmm. for what they were expecting, which was a SARS epidemic. But instead, they got the flood of the century, yeah. as we know. Yeah. And the thing that impressed me was the story was about a church with five campuses. And when the flood hit, emergency services made one phone call, and those five campuses were open for food and a place to sleep. Yeah. So what happened was, of course, you know, the good old Alberta farmers, when your neighbor's in trouble, you put the tools in the truck and head yeah. down to Calgary to help him rebuild his basement, right? Yeah. And they're yeah. flooding into the city, <laughs> pardon the metaphor, but, you know, uh, there was no place for them to stay. So yeah. this church provided that. And I thought, wow, of course we should do this. Every yeah. pastor I've talked to and all my connections in our city says, sign me up. Yeah. Well, the challenge is, of course, get in the city to see the need for that because cities are led by, uh, well... Let's just say yeah. certain first responders are not interested in help from the community. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so we're still working on that. Yeah. And, uh, and along with that, um, with, with the advent of climate change, our city just declared a climate emergency, actually, hmm. about a month ago. And uh, which, I, you know, I understand the reason for that. And, and it's led to some quite significant long-term plans. It's like a 62-page report mm-hmm. on uh, doing things like building um, buildings that don't contribute to... Uh, global warming and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the trouble is, in that plan, there's almost nothing the average person can do to contribute to that. Okay, well, buy, a, buy an electric car. Okay, yeah. so if you've got 70 grand, and, well, by the way, there's hardly any charging stations. Yeah. So that'd be a problem too. But yeah. what can they do? So um, one of the things I would like to, to tie in with this idea of churches and, and other faith communities being disaster shelters is also being places where basic uh, resilience can be taught. What do I mean by that? Most Canadians don't realize, but with a little bit of preparation, not much cost, you can prepare your family to shelter at home for about for 72 hours. Mm-hmm. So you need three days of water and food, you need blankets, you need flashlights, you need a wind-up radio, mm-hmm. and these genius little things, like 50 bucks. Yeah. And they'll, they'll charge your phone, and you yeah. can listen to the emergency bands and find out what's going yeah. on. Having one of those, um, and, and just enough so that for three days, no matter what's going on, you can get by. Right. So look at our friends in Newfoundland this week. Yeah. Okay. I, I was coming to work today and listening to the news to a story about a guy who, who went out to buy milk and bread five days after the stores had been closed. Mm-hmm. And people were fighting over the last, you know, counting of milk. And it was like yeah. a tw- uh, three-quarter an hour wait at the checkout line. Mm-hmm. So had those people been prepared they would already be in decent shape to start off with, besides whatever else they had in the house. So what I'm saying to the city is, look, my church that I attend, we teach 2,000 people a week. Mm -hmm. We're in the business of instructing people. So are mosques and synagogues and gudwaras and so forth. So if you connected to all of these faith communities and had a memorandum of understanding and helped them do the preparation, my church has already thought about buying a generator so that no matter Mm -hmm. what happens, we have heat, light, and hot food, which I think would be amazing. 
So if, if that's the case, then don't you think our 2,000 people, some of them would be interested in knowing how to look after themselves mm-hmm. for the first three days mm-hmm. without much cost or effort? Mm-hmm. And it's something they can do towards you know, this climate emergency that's been declared and, and right. that would impact them personally. But guess what? Those 2,000 people know a lot of friends and neighbors and family yeah. members and coworkers. Yeah. It'd be an amazing way to up the level, the general resilience of the city so, and involve faith communities. So before, before a church gets to that stage, they really need to have an ethos, a lifestyle of caring for the community, right? Absolutely. So that it's just a natural step when when crises hit. Yep. Um, do you think that uh, many churches are are ready to respond to the community? I don't think so. I mean, not certainly not in our fellowship. They aren't. I know that yeah. uh, in Calgary, when the flood hit, there were churches that were sort of thinking about doing something. Yeah. It's far too late then. Yeah. Far too late then. Yeah. So I mean, uh, that's a larger conversation as well about being mm-hmm. involved with the community. But it's probably the greatest need that we have, in my opinion, right now. I'll elaborate on that. Well, Pre- <laughs> preach, preacher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I started the ministry, Kevin, in 1973, mm-hmm. a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, um, I remember going to a district conference in East Ontario. I was in, in Dorval, Quebec at the time with Earl McNutt, who was a wonderful man. Uh, and um, I stood up at the conference and said, you know, I think our churches should be more concerned about poverty. Mm. And I talked about that. 1973. Yeah. And uh, in 74, the conference was. And I was basically told to shut up and sit down. God had called us to do evangelism. That was the response. And my pastor <laughs> stood up and kind of stood up for me. And I mean, I had, I had, was growing in my own social understanding because I had worked for a while after I left the church and, uh, and, and stayed in Montreal with World Vision. I was actually their first representative in, in Quebec. Mm. So, and we had a World Vision child. And then eventually God spoke to us to adopt two kids from overseas into our family. Yeah. So we were kind of moving on that journey, my wife and I ourselves, yeah. and seeing, I mean, you can't read the New Testament. <laughs> no. no, you can't. <laughs> and not see Jesus did much more than preach. Yeah. You know, he cared for people. He looked after their needs, it, often with a sign of wonder, fine, but that's not the only way to do it. So um, th- that has not changed uh, s- uh, very quickly over the years uh, through through the POC and in the POC because we've still been so focused on evangelism. And I understand why. When our movement was formed, the United Church had abandoned the concept of personal conversion, like explicitly, viciously yeah. abandoned yeah. it. There are younger brother, by the way, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the United Church was born in 25, so they're a little younger than we are, but mm-hmm. f- from some older elements. Uh, and um, so <clears throat> we, we reacted against that. I mean, if everybody's going to get on this side of the boat, the rest of us are going to get on that side of the boat so it won't right. tip over. Right. And we, we reacted, and, and this led to what was called um, uh, you know, a, a turning away right across North America from what used to be very significant social engagement. So mm-hmm. um, churches uh, that we would consider evangelical, Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches, uh, who were very evangelical before the turn of the 20th century, they were very involved in the community. They cared for people and they did all sorts of stuff like that. And that was all part of who they were. Mm-hmm. But uh, the more they focused on the social gospel and abandoned the need for conversion, the more that took over you know, their ethos and, and their involvement. And uh, so when that happened, there was this, uh, what they call the Great Reversal. Mm -hmm. So the Great Reversal was when the evangelical churches and those who wanted to remain evangelical turned away 
from holistic ministry because mm-hmm. if you're going to do just that, then we're just going to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that was that that unfortunate right. reaction. We'll do what you don't do. Yeah, we'll do what the greatest need is. Prioritize. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. And so that that was the foundation of our our thinking, and uh, has shaped our thinking for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, and and you've heard this, but uh, I I preach a message wherever I can called, called Kingdom Mission. And essentially, I'm saying, you know, Jesus uh, didn't come just to talk about getting saved. He came to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which we internalize. Being saved by faith, that's righteousness, and peace is peace with God, mm-hmm. and joy. Well, we know what that is. But we have to remember, Paul was a Jewish uh, rabbi. Mm-hmm. And when he says the word righteousness, I mean, said, can you in the Shalom. Old Testament? Well, yeah. righteousness is also the word for justice. Yeah. So the kingdom of God is justice, mm-hmm. and it's shalom, but shalom is wholeness in every imaginable aspect of life, right. including right. eradication of poverty and care for the poor and, yeah. and for the lonely yeah. and all of those things. All things that God told his chosen people to do, and they, they sometimes didn't. didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's why they were sent off the land. Yeah. Don't get me started on that, but there's a yeah. whole intimate relationship, uh, like, a, like a triangle between God and Israel and the land. And the way they treated the land was the way they treated God. Mm. And what they did on the land, which ended up being idolatry and immorality and injustice, is what got them removed from the land and broke the partnership yeah. for a time. I want to go back to you, you talked about in, in the, uh, you know, quote, social gospel, unquote, uh, how uh, some of the United Church and others uh, abandoned the whole concept of conversion. Um, do you do you see a is there a causal connection to the academy? Is that uh, part of the root system that changed uh, our our universities? Any thoughts on that? Well, sure. I mean, the, the universities um, were were hugely impacted with evolution. Mm-hmm. And then the seminaries, which is where all the Methodist ministers were trained, were, at, were that's how the universities got started. Mm-hmm. Several of the universities started as seminaries. Yeah. So in, in uh, I think it was Brockville, they had a, 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 a like a seminary, which became moved to Toronto and became Victoria mm-hmm. College. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the intellectual currents that were coming from Germany at the time um, were transferred to North America by people who studied there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, began to uh, be brought into the classroom, and they tried to find an accommodation with these this new knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it led them to more and more to a liberal uh, theological position mm-hmm. that saw the gospel much more as helping people uh, become, you know, um, healthy and happy and employed and all those kinds of things. And that was the really what yeah. the gospel was about. Yeah. So they embraced aspects of the kingdom, but they forgot the personal relationship with the king, which is the foundation of the kingdom. Right. But, you know, there are people, Kevin, that I have met who are wonderful people. This is something else that we haven't have in our theology, but it's there. There are wonderful people who are doing the work of the kingdom, but they've never met the king. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's where their heart is, and, and it's in the right place in the terms of what they're yeah. doing, but they don't realize the source of it all or the motivation for it all. They're, they're in our cities. They're working in social work. They're, in, they're city planners. They're yeah. uh, every, every spectrum, right? Yeah. People yeah. who have... A vision for the kingdom and don't know the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And just their mindset is that, that that's not important mm-hmm. or that's not necessary. Yeah. And of course, that leads unfortunately to to other challenges because if you if you're concerned about righteousness 
And we see this a lot today. Um, if you're concerned about righteousness as regards, for example, individual rights, well, there's a problem there with a huge emphasis on individualism that's destroying community. But also, if you don't know the Lord, it often just leads to anger. Mm-hmm. And we see so much anger and so much, you know, people are concerned about the rights of women or the rights of LGBTQ people. But the way they express it is so vicious in attacking others who don't agree with them. Right. But the Bible says that the wrath of man doesn't lead to the righteousness or the justice of God. Mm. And they're missing that whole, pro- that whole way of which these things will be established. And it won't be through anger and through shaming and through attacking people or yeah. through lawsuits. It's through, uh, it's through love and through care and through generosity and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's how it'll happen. Mm-hmm. So w- we have to find ways to communicate with people who are, ha- have this passion for justice, but they're going about it all the wrong way because they don't have that inner peace and they don't know who they are and they just, they just lash out. Right, right. Um, with, um, you, you were involved in a, uh, a housing initiative uh, and uh, you know we don't want to n- uh, name names here because we don't have those permissions but uh, but um, yeah, I mean tell us the story so uh, as, as you noted uh, in, in our discussions before I, I've, uh, I've kind of worked out a little uh, explanation of what I do and how I do it mm-hmm. I like to understand things I'm a curious person drives my wife crazy uh, but one of my dear pastor's friends says, I have the gift of curiosity. Because mm-hmm. I always like to know why things are the way they are. And what's yeah. the answer to that? And how did it get that way? And what can we do about it? Is that why your uh, email signature says Chief Sneezer? It does. It so, does. And, it is. and then I've also yeah. heard you uh, say that your modus operandi is sniff, sneeze, splice. Yeah. Well, being a preacher, it has to be three, uh, starting with the same letter. But yeah, that's right. It took me a while to figure out what I was doing uh, yeah. and how it was working. And how the Lord was uh, was using me. I think that's going to be the, the name of this episode. Sniff, sneeze, <laughs> splice. Okay. Well, <laughs> sniffing involves... Quick bait. <laughs> sniffing involves <laughs> noticing areas of life or community where the kingdom of God has not come and it needs to come. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just being curious. It's just noticing things and asking the question, okay, how come this is like that? This isn't right. This is something that that shouldn't be happening. This is something that would make God upset, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so uh, I found, I had some friends in Streetsville where I lived, uh, which is one of the small communities that was the, uh, in the formation of Mississauga in 74. And it goes back over 160 years now. But uh, in Streetsville there was a place, and there's, it's not the only place like this, but uh, it was a, a, an old home uh, and it was full of mental patients. See, uh, and this this came as a result of, of the story of health. Uh, yeah, and diagnosed mental health yeah. issues. They could be bipolar yeah. or schizophrenic or mm-hmm. uh, cl- cl- clinical depression, all mm-hmm. sorts of things. And uh, 25 years ago, the provincial government, in its infinite wisdom, or I would say stupidity, decided to close all the institutions where these people could yeah. live. And suddenly the, the community had a, a, a flood of people with extreme needs and not the infrastructure to support them. Exactly. Who couldn't make it on their own. But the government decided, some bureaucrat decided at that time that they could live on $750 a month. It's it's magnificently increased in 25 years to $1,250 a month. Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't live on $1,250 a month. A one-bedroom apartment in Mississauga is over $2,000 now. Yeah. Nobody could survive on that, but that's what they're paid to survive on. 
So uh, the market, so-called, always finds a way to meet a need if there's money in it. So unscrupulous individuals would buy old houses, do minimal renovation, and cram them full of these people, feed them cheap food, and get rich. Mm -hmm. So this particular place that, uh, that, that I got involved with was just like that. Tw uh, seven rooms, up to 20 people in seven rooms, insect-infested, filthy, uh, you know, led by one person who had some deep needs in her own life, whose modus operandi was to force them to clean the place and showed abuse at them if they didn't. Mm. Police were there two or three times a week because they were bouncing off each other. Mm. And of course, when you're a mental patient, you really lose everything. Your family cannot care for you. Families mm. are not designed to function and, and look after a seriously mental person. They just are not. It's they don't have what it takes. Yeah. So who's going to look after them? And, yeah. and uh, Because they have some level of functionality, but they're so easily uh, taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they don't make a decision. They don't know how to handle money because they have a mental illness. Right. So these people are in this place. They have nothing to do all day long. They live in a terrible place. They have no family. They have no friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a horrible situation. Worst, worst case scenario. Yeah, I mean, it's a place where darkness Not only are you rains. down, you're being pressed down. Yeah. And so, you know, you ask yourself, well, where do they get the people to put in this place? They get them from Appeal Social Services because they've got nowhere else to send them except mm. the street. Maybe that's why a third of all of our street people are mentally ill. Mm. Mental illness is what put them in the first place, possibly. So I learned about this place from friends of mine who were going in there doing what Christians always do. When there's a problem, Christians show up mm -hmm. and they start to help. And they were just spending time with these guys, being their friend, taking them out for a coffee, celebrating their birthday with a little cake or something. Yeah. Just talking to them, just yeah. listening to them. So simple, so mm -hmm. basic. Yeah, restoring their humanity. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I said to my friends, are you praying for these guys? Like, are you? Well, no, we're just kind of, I said, come on, let's meet once a month. Let's pray for them. Let's find out their names. Let's find out what's going on with them. Let's find out why this is like this. So we started to pray. And the more so we you prayed. you sniffed and, you, and then you sneezed. Yeah, I sneezed, yeah. yeah and then others. I spliced. I brought some people together and we yeah. met once a month at my church and we prayed. And as we prayed, God took us on a journey, you know, first of all, of compassion, learning their stories, weeping and praying for them, and then starting to ask questions like, okay, why is it like this? Well, why are there places like this? And we learned the story about, I just told you, what the, the provincial government did. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we finally got, it took us a while to get to the question, okay, who's doing something about this? And that's when we discovered an amazing organization in Hamilton, someone shared uh, with us about, called Indwell Christian Homes. So this is a group of, a Christian group, that actually started in someone's home. Indwell Christian Homes. Indwell Christian Homes. Yeah, we'll have to refer to them in the show notes. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, These guys are up. remarkable kingdom people. So about 35 years ago, when this uh, this happened and the, and the places were closed, this Christian Reformed family took a person into their home. And it's kind of fun. One of the gals on staff there, she says, Indwell started in my bedroom because I moved in with my brother. So this compassionate family <laughs> could take in this person. And over the years, they, they developed a series of group homes. They weren't formal group homes in the sense of, you know, staffed by psychologists and so forth. But they were places where these people could live affordably and could be cared for. And the people they took in had some level of functionality, but they couldn't manage their own housing. And then uh, more recently, they began to grow, and then they started uh, taking over and renovating or, or creating buildings. Mm -hmm. And these guys are so amazingly creative. Every time I meet them, they've got some new angle they're working and some new approach to dealing with these problems. So they'll take an old um, uh, motel downtown Hamilton mm -hmm. that's just 
unbelievable conditions. Like it, would, it looks like third world if you go through the building, yeah. and people squatting there. You know, people yeah. who are addicted and, yeah. and all kinds of issues and prostitution every, every going city on. City has has places like that. Sometimes in plain view, sometimes it's hidden away. Yeah. yeah. And these guys renovated this building completely. It's a gorgeous looking building now. Put a new skin on it. Mm-hmm. Fixed it all up. And filled it with uh, with people who can live there for five hundred dollars a month for the rest of their life if they need to. Mm-hmm. So they've still got seven fifty. They yeah. they they have a support worker there. They have um, uh, um, other program. well no they what no. they do is they they alert all the social services mm-hmm. of every kind in the whole neighborhood yeah. that these people are going to be there. Yeah. Uh, and so they they're connected to food banks and all kinds of clothing banks and all yeah. sorts of stuff. And the churches get involved in the lives of these individuals and teach them how they have a cooking class or a yeah. fitness class and, and they'll take them shopping and uh, uh, one of the places that they bought and renovated was actually owned by the mafia uh, in downtown Hamilton there were three mortgages on the building <laughs> <laughs> so the guy they bought it from left town with his family as soon as he sold it yeah. so they put another story in the building with government money and uh, it's a, a remarkable place you walk into that place it's the atmosphere is so positive uh, so uplifting. The people who live in the building actually do the janitorial work, so they have a sense of ownership uh, mm-hmm. and are involved. And they've actually started a feeding program out of that building mm-hmm. with help. So they bring in fruits and vegetables. They make these boxes of fresh fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. 15 bucks. Anybody needs them, and they'll yeah. deliver them sometimes. So here they are helping the poor. Mm-hmm. These are people with mental illness yeah. who are giving back. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's so kicked, right? I love it's so that. healthy for them. So. It's so many possibilities. So anyway, we heard about these guys. We went down to see them. We being, I got um, some of my prayer team involved and some pastors, my own pastor and a few other pastors. And we went down to see these guys. It was like they were waiting for us when we walked in. Like we walked out of the being saying, that was weird. Like they were waiting for us. It turns out they were waiting for us. They had so many applications from Mississauga. They've been thinking about doing something in Mississauga. But these guys always work with the church. They're explicitly Christian. They wait until there's a group of churches that want to do something that will partner with them in the community. Mm. And we we were that group. And so we walked with them for a couple of years. And then um, uh, another pastor friend and myself were invited to their board meeting. uh, And he couldn't come. So I went down and told my story, just pretty much what I told you. Mm -hmm. Fifteen minutes later, they decided to move into Mississauga in the next five years and build three buildings. So, as you may know, Mississauga doesn't have a lot of empty space. No. So for about two years, we prayed and looked. Uh, one of the guys who was part of this was an amazing brother who is a real estate agent in my church mm-hmm. uh, with a gift of generosity like I've never seen. And uh, he was looking for places. He walks into this old Firestone dealership one day. It says to the guy, you ever thought about selling? The guy says, no, I haven't. Talk to me. So $2.3 million later, they bought this old Firestone garage. Mm-hmm. And they always are very... Concerned about the right locations, got to have transit, access to hospitals, because yeah. these guys said, Which in you know, Mississauga prices is probably not that bad. Not that bad at all. Yeah. So they've remediated the land and got everything prepared. And uh, the affordable housing situation in Ontario is, is exacerbated by the government policy. They say you have to buy the land and get it shovel ready until you can ask for money. So here you are, a nonprofit. Yeah. You've got to lay down two point yeah. three million to buy the place, probably a million dollars for remediation because I yeah. mean there was a, a garage, yeah. you know, there before. So they Drawings, had to do the environmental study yeah. and dig out the, you know, the whole yeah. thing. So all of that, uh, but it so happened just coincidentally, when it came time to ask for money, there were two applicants for all of Peel's social housing money that year. This was two years ago. One was. Uh, um, uh, Habitat for Humanity, which aren't doing yeah. supported housing. So right. they were a non-starter. 
So in July, two years ago, uh, the, the Region Appeal, which is uh, Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon, gave Indwell $21.5 million to build a building. Wow. And these guys are remarkable because I read their proposal, and their proposal said, you build the building, we will run it for 40 years and never ask for another dime. Now, there's not many supported housing uh, you know, organizations that would say that to you. But they can do it because they have such an amazing financial model. They have believers who invest money mm -hmm. in what they do for a modest return so that their money can be used for the kingdom. So they have a, you know, a bank account where they can do this kind of stuff up front. So we're, we're looking forward to the groundbreaking one day uh, soon mm -hmm. and, um, and seeing that building go up. They'll, they're actually required to have commercial stuff on the ground floor. So one of their tenants will be a food bank started by the churches along Lakeshore Road. It turns out the location of the building is right in the middle of their demographic. Uh, they were further west of this yeah. little church I mentioned before. Yeah. So it's just so many kingdom possibilities come from all of this. And they're looking now for two more pieces of land. We're actually praying about the piece of land uh, where that place I told you about was, was yeah. located yeah. and asking God to open up that land so that on the spot yeah. where oppression was, we can bring blessing and justice yeah. to those kind of people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Tell me how you really feel about it. <laughs> Um, no. your, your work, you're, a, you're a, a very creative, busy man and very uh, studious too, you know, I, I like that about you. You're working on a project called Preparing for the Storm to Come and it's an analysis of the challenges, uh, the opportunities as well uh, for full onset post-Christendom anti-Christian culture in Canada. Uh, there are many of us that see that churn that's been happening in our country and we're scratching our heads about what to do. How do we need to view discipleship in the days to come? Because I think at the heart of church culture, if it's not about making disciples, it's not really church, is it? Absolutely. That's the mandate, make disciples, not converts. Yeah. Well, I happen to have a bit of a background in discipleship. When I was in my first church, I was with two years with one wonderful older man who was one of my teachers in Bible school. Then he moved on. And then another man uh, came in who had started working on uh, curriculum for small groups. This was at a time when people thought small groups were cultish and would split your church. Mm. It's hard to imagine that now. But uh, back in the early 70s, that was the case. So we spent three uh, wonderful years together. And, and during that time, he encouraged me to, to begin writing. And so I wrote a course uh, for new Christians for three ladies uh, in Sunday school. So every week I would write a lesson. Mm -hmm. uh, this 13-week uh, course, of course, the Sunday school curriculum was divided into quarters, 13 weeks. And I called it New Life Studies. And uh, when we were done, I actually uh, wrote out a full version of that, 160 pages or something, as a course using methodology that my senior pastor was involving that involved small groups and study at home and discussion mm -hmm. questions and so mm -hmm. forth. Today, that course, as far as I know, is still being used in several different countries. It's been translated into six or seven languages mm -hmm. and uh, seems to have a, a life of its own. But um, over time, uh, once he left the church um, he, and went back to the States, he'd been in the States for a while as a Canadian. And uh, uh, after a year of transition for me, uh, with World Vision and so forth, I uh, started working for him editing curriculum. Uh, I seem to have a gift for writing. I've written, uh, well, my stuff in the archives takes up two meter long shelves that I've written or edited, so somehow that's, it's hilarious because I almost failed English when I was a kid in school, but, but if you want to learn how to write well, you just read good stuff and write lots, and you'll, you'll yeah. become a better writer, but anyway, 
That's what happened to me. So I spent three and a half years in the States working on the Lay Leadership Institute curriculum oh, with Brother that. Don Hill. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, it's had a good run. It, 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 we were at the cutting edge, to some extent, of small groups. So I used to say the only people who believed in small groups were us and Lyman Coleman. But um, <laughs> we, we, we encountered a lot of opposition, pastors who were very fearful of it. So we actually mm-hmm. had to do a curriculum to teach them how to go about having small groups that was would not be divisive but would, would be great for their church, strengthening their church and for discipling believers. Yeah. Because one of the things we, we stress was the fact that uh, based on the New Testament and psychology and everything else you want to look at, discipleship is a relational process. Mm-hmm. It's a life transfer process. You cannot do it from the pulpit. I'm sorry if you think you do. You're, you're fooling it's yourself. It's more relational than academic. Uh, the, yeah, than, yeah, than instructional. Absolutely. And, and we've tended to turn discipleship into the academy. Absolutely. We fill yeah. people's heads. It's like a football team, and, and all you do is feed them the big meal before the game, but they never leave the locker room. So they just get fat. Yeah. And they don't win any games either. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've done that for a very long, very long time. So um, the so relational what you're component... saying is, church, you need to get out there and hurt. Well, this is what, this is what it ends up coming to. I mean... Yeah. Uh, I'd worked for a long time on that curriculum. Actually, because I developed the curriculum, I ended up in a large church in Toronto where they were using the curriculum as the Minister of Discipleship. Mm -hmm. And that was a challenging experience on a number of levels I won't go into. But um, uh, over time, uh, I I moved out of there and and moved into uh, being involved here in um, communicating missions and archives. But uh, over time, I began to, my thinking began to change about how we were going about things because we were still communicating content. We were doing it well. We were getting people mm-hmm. into the scriptures. They were reading the Bible, answering questions, writing their answers down, discussing their answers. The whole educational reinforcement piece happening there. Mm-hmm. You don't just read it or hear it. You read it and then you write it and then you discuss it. Yeah. But we were still missing a key piece. And uh, as a result of my experiences in, in that particular church, I began to be very interested in organizational change and how uh, organizations can become toxic. Mm-hmm. and what that looks like and, and how you can overcome that. And so that process led me to uh, studying scripture and actually writing a theology of organizational change. I don't know if that should be called a theology or not, but and it's still somewhat unfinished, but it was actually a project I did as a year consultant uh, here in my own church in Mississauga. And um, that process led me to conclude that discipleship, like the football team, it has to involve exercise and playing the game. So if you're going to grow in understanding the Bible, you need to be involved with people in need. And you need to be out there in the community and connected to the community. Because it's like saying, you know, if you want to get fit, just eat. (laughs) Apparently that doesn't work. (laughs) You know, whereas we're missing the exercise part. We're missing the part where you're interested in the lesson this week because someone's just asked you a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah. Or you know that they're going to ask that question. Yeah. And you have a motivation to learn because you're becoming a teacher. Well, for me, a teacher is someone who loves to learn. The Mm. word scholar means student. Yeah. Because I love to learn. My favorite thing is learning. Mm -hmm. And if you look at my library and, and, and my desk, you would see... I mean, the internet is the worst thing possible for someone like me because there's so much good stuff out there and I'm printing it all and, you know, <laughs> wading through it all. And uh, so I love to learn because I love to teach. And, and if you, you don't do the study, you shouldn't be doing the teaching. But if Christians are not involved in life with other people who have needs, they will not grow. Yeah. 
And I was asked by this church that I left years ago to write a philosophy of discipleship for them. By this time, I'd come to the conclusion <laughs> that yes, have your small groups, yes, have your relational discipleship, but you have to have them involved somehow in the life of the community or they will not grow. They'll just get fat heads. Right. You know, which is what our church, even the churches that have small groups, it covers off the fellowship side because you have an intimate community where you can share your heart, which you don't have in a service. That's not the purpose of no, a service. No. So it covers off that, the koinonia part, but it doesn't cover off the ministry part. You have to get out into the real world. Well, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And how, the pastor says, well, I can tell my people, but, you know, they don't do it. Well, of course they don't do it because they're not, you're not setting an example. Right. Well, how do you set an example? Well, Pastor, you have to spend a percentage of your time in the life of the community yourself. Mm. You have to be encountering people who are asking questions and, 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 and involved in, in their lives. And involved in their lives, not as the preacher who's going to tell them all the answers, but as a servant yeah. who's going to help bring righteousness or justice and, and, and shalom and, and joy to your community where it's needed most. Yeah. So I tell pastors, you need to have a course in, in what your city is really like. That means sit down with your reward counselor Exegete and your city. ask him, yeah. how can I help? How can I serve? And then shut up and listen mm-hmm. and listen to what he says. Take notes. Yeah. But for heaven's sakes, don't promise to do anything unless you're really going to do something to address the concerns that he or she has. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you do that, you will find they will become your best ally. Yep. Cities are in trouble. Cities are facing huge challenges. Mm -hmm. In Canada, as in most parts of the world, cities are at the bottom of the food chain. What do I mean by that? The money that they receive is under the control of the provincial government. So our mayor, Bonnie Crombie, who's doing a wonderful job, uh, she cannot put out a new tax to raise funds because it's illegal. The cities of Ontario are governed by the Municipal Act of Ontario, which is a child of the Ontario government. And the only things they can do is what that thing says, mm-hmm. which means raise taxes. Everybody loves to do that. Yeah. Or, you know, charge more when people go swimming. That's probably not going to help <laughs> with, with the costs. Yeah, especially of, if you're on $750 a month. Well, yeah, that, yeah. those guys especially. But, yeah. but uh, regardless, so, and of course, the provincial government is a child of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And the major funding that it gets is doled out as the, the federal government decides to the provincial governments yeah. and then to the cities. This is why someone wrote a, bo- a book, If Mayors Rule the World, because mayors can accomplish a lot because they have to. They're at the interface of people's everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So the mayor knows if I don't help people with their real needs, I'm out of here. Yeah. And your work counselor yeah. knows that too. But they also realize the incredible amount of need that's out there and the limitations they have in dealing with it. I have great respect for our city leaders Mm-hmm. Because I've sat in city council meetings. I mean, your head just spins oh, with yeah. the detail they have to deal with. Yeah. And uh, for a while there, I was reading the city council minutes. That's an exercise in, I don't know what, but insanity possibly. You know, mm-hmm. five pages of traffic adjustments. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. All, the other, and all the significant stuff in, in with that. You really so, are studious. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> or crazy. <laughs> but um, the point is you need to learn about what it, what's really happening in your city. At, at different levels, but the city leaders will educate you. And because of those challenges, I believe, and my experience has, has indicated to me that they are very open to anybody who's willing to really help, mm-hmm. even if you have a religious label. So is this part of preparing for the storm to come, is repositioning Absolutely. ourselves Absolutely. In, in the life of As our As friends city. of the city. 
friends and friends of the leadership of the city and supporters yeah. of them and they're all they're not perfect and uh, yeah. many of them are very imperfect but the point is they know the city better than anybody yeah and they're the ones uh, who will i think welcome you with open arms if so you come we, to we help we can't lead with our partisanship no we, we can't lead with uh, our agenda nope we come as servants to say how do I cause my city to be better? To prosper. To I mean, prosper, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. Jeremiah. It's uh, pray for the peace of your city. Pray for the yeah. shalom. Well, shalom is everything you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Individual, corporate, all-encompassing. Political, yeah. mental, social, right. spiritual, everything. Mm. So we have to remember, we have, we have a Christendom hangover. Because the Western mm. civilization has been largely Christian, where Christian values were in charge. That's going away very, very quickly. Yeah. And we don't know how to live under the conditions of non-Christendom. But the rest of the Christian world does. Yeah. And thank God many of them are coming here. Yeah. You know, and they yeah. can teach us. They can help us to understand. Mm-hmm. And they realize the seriousness. I always remember a story. We had a guy in, uh, in our church who was with, uh, I want to say YWAM, but it wasn't YWAM. Anyway, their ministry uh, was resourcing. Uh, believers, so so a whole monastery of Tibetan monks gets saved. So they buy them elephants, so they can do lumber business and, and, serve, and support themselves instead of begging. Now, that's an unusual ministry. That's, that's but, quite a story. That's yeah, quite a story. Yeah. So the guy who told us this story also told us about believers in Vietnam who risk going to prison and really suffering for their faith, and he said they pray for us. And you know, you ask yourself, why are they praying for us? Because they know how hard it is to keep your faith strong under conditions of peace and prosperity. Mm. That's the most dangerous condition for the church, history suggests. Mm. And we've been under it for a long, long time. It's very easy to go to sleep yeah. and just enjoy the good life. Come and get a good sermon on Sunday, get charged yeah. up and out the door, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas if you interface with your city, God will break your heart. Mm-hmm. God will break your heart because there's heartbreaking things in our cities. So many of them, poverty, single moms, people with um, even no place to live. Thankfully, I think most of our homeless, if not all, are housed in our city. Mm -hmm. But that's not the answer. The answer is is finding them housing. And that's what Indwell is doing. In fact, they're part, in some respects, of what they call housing first. Are you familiar with housing first? In other words, instead of going to a shelter and then a long-term shelter and all this kind of stuff, that's like a four-step process. Go right from the street to your own home with yeah. tons of supports. Yeah. And it's proving transformational. Yeah. There are actually cities in Canada, I believe Medicine Hat, mm-hmm. decided it would have no more homelessness, and they've achieved it mm-hmm. through, this, through this approach. The other thing is, I mean, there's so many aspects to this. If people did the math, they would realize how incredibly expensive homelessness is. It's, it's unbelievably yeah. expensive. Yeah. It's the same with not providing, uh, uh, you know, uh, junior kindergarten. Quebec has saved bucket loads of money by doing that because it's so beneficial long term to the, the intellectual the and emotional and the physical health of those children. Formative year, yeah. and, and the problems it prevents down the road. You know, I mean, yeah. why are there gangs? There are gangs because young people, uh, you know, feel alienated and they feel uh, afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and if they're not academically active you know, and can't get, make, be successful the normal way, this is a way to have guns and money and prestige yeah. and, and et cetera. And safety, if you're getting bullied, you don't join a gang. Nobody will bully you anymore. Yeah. You know, but why aren't those needs being met? Yeah. 
in other ways. And, and even these kids that live in families, but they're neglected because mom and dad are both working and da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And then there's the socially isolated. Uh, I was hired to do a project for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Toronto, who are amazing people. I have so much respect for these guys. I did a research project on how many people are totally socially isolated, have no human contact virtually for weeks on end or for days on end. And uh, we can't be sure of this, but my estimate, they asked me to look at the 905, so surrounding Toronto, mm-hmm. 60,000 people could be in that condition. Well, it's the same as smoking five cigarettes a day for your physical health. It'll yeah, bring on Alzheimer's and yeah. dementia much sooner yeah. and all kinds of consequences. Yeah. You know, our cities are full of people who almost never get to talk to somebody in the course of a week, if you can believe it. I believe it. And what an opportunity for ministry. A huge challenge identifying them because of our crazy privacy laws. But, you know, a casual conversation with a a Meals on Wheels person will tell you who these people are Mm because they bring the food Mm -hmm. and these guys want them to stay and talk because they have no one else to talk to. So there are so many opportunities there and simple things because these needs are hidden. But not hidden that badly. Yeah, you go looking for things, them. right? And I mean, there's a whole process. I don't know if you want to get into that today, but how a church can uh, can begin to help people get involved in the life of their city. And I've done quite a bit of thinking about how that works. But yeah, um, maybe give that's us, for give another us a day. taste. Give us well, a taste. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said before, everything is lead by example. So uh, if the pastor and his staff or her staff are not out in the community, don't expect your people to be. Right. However, the point is people will not follow you if you just stand up and tell your story because you could walk on water, you're the pastor. Your story doesn't count. Right. So we have to have new stories from different people. Stories are what change culture, mm. what form culture. So if you're not telling new stories, don't expect to change. Well, I'm glad that uh, we're recording this today because you have uh, a story and and the things that you say are transformative. And uh, so thank you so much, Jim, for uh, being a guest on Sidewalk Skyline. And, and I, I, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, we, we might have to have you back one of these times because uh, you're one of those guys where I feel like uh, we're just scratching the surface and, and there's a whole wealth uh, of heart there that that can be shared so thank you thank you kevin my pleasure and that was james craig the chief sneezer of the pentecostal assemblies of canada interesting guy i'm glad i got to know him better Uh, on our next episode uh, we're going to be uh, interviewing aaron mix ross Aaron is a veteran of urban pastoral ministry, having uh, served on staff at Stone Church in downtown Toronto, Heartland Church in Mississauga, and most recently, uh, between the time of the interview and now, he moved uh, with his uh, new bride, uh, Annabelle, out to Richmond, British Columbia a uh, beautiful area uh, of Vancouver and such a great opportunity uh, to be involved in ministry there. Well, the reason that I interviewed Aaron, uh, in addition to his urban ministry experiences, uh, was uh, had to do with his studies at the University of Toronto. Uh, he, he did thesis work on First Nations and the Canadian Church. And we want to take a look at Aboriginals in the city. 
the 2016 census in Canada showed that 4.9% of all Canadians are Aboriginal First Nations. Uh, that includes Métis and Inuit. And 51.8% uh, of Aboriginals live in metropolitan areas. The four largest cities in Canada with uh, Aboriginal populations of note are Winnipeg, Edmonton, Vancouver, and Toronto. And 51.8% uh, of Aboriginals live in a Canadian city of 30,000 people or more. And then if you look at the Métis population, two-thirds of Métis uh, are living in metropolitan areas. So um, there's a long uh, storied history uh, between First Nations and churches in Canada. Some of that story is tragic uh, with the, uh, the, the schools where a lot of abuse took place, uh, the stripping uh, Aboriginals of their cultural identities, and, and uh, of course, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, worked long and hard to uh, bring all of that history to light and l take steps to say, what does reconciliation look like? I'm, uh, I remember being at a, one of our Pentecostal conferences in, uh, uh, close to 10 years ago, uh, where uh, our national leadership uh, made uh, apologies related to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And although uh, we uh, did not have um, schools and uh, the, uh, the same kind of history as some of the other mainline and Catholic churches in Canada, uh, our relationships uh, with First Nations, we wanted to make sure that uh, we were living in respect and godliness towards our brothers and sisters. And uh, so Aaron has a lot to say uh, about um, the uh, relationship between First Nations and the Canadian Church. So please uh, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. And uh, we're uh, going to... Uh, back with Aaron Mix Ross on February 15th. Watch for it. Subscribe if you haven't already. I'm Kevin Rogers and thank you again for listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.